0: You may be seated this morning. Well, thank you, John and team, for that incredible time of worship. As Zach mentioned, uh, my name is Jay Strother. Uh, And it is an honor and privilege to get to be with you today. I've been praying for your congregation for a long time. Uh, I've heard a lot of great things uh, about the things that God is doing here, great things about your pastor. And uh, clearly, uh, you need to know that we sent you one of our best uh, in Zach and Rachel and Morgan and Luke. uh, And we were um, excited for them that God opened up this opportunity. But of course, we missed them. And I've got a lot of good Zach stories for you uh, because I started with him when he was in college ministry. And so we'll save some of those. For later today and tonight, uh, but uh, super proud of him and the work he's doing and the work that God is doing here. Uh, one thing that you need to know about me is that I spent my first four years of full time ministry in North Alabama. Uh, at a church very much like this one, uh, kind of in, uh, in a growing community. I was in Morgan County uh, at a church called Shiloh Baptist. Uh, and so we got married and moved to Alabama. Uh, my wife, who is from west of Chicago in Illinois and was nannying for a Wall Street family, said, Jay, I always knew God was going to call us to be foreign missionaries. I just didn't know it was going to be Alabama. And, uh, and so for her, it was a major adjustment in lifestyle and in culture. For me, being from Southern Illinois, a farm boy, I just kind of fit right in. Uh, But, man, the church there loved us, embraced us. Our first daughter was born in Alabama. Uh, So somebody gave us a big plaque that said, I wasn't born in the South, but I got there as fast as I could. Uh, And so we're kind of adopted Alabamians, and we still keep up with a lot of our friends from this part of the world. And as a matter of fact, I used to take my students to Camp Lee down the road. Uh, We rented out that camp so we could have our own uh, retreats and events. In my first couple of years down here, we needed to build some identity. Uh, And one incredible thing that happened was there was a young man who was saved, Uh, in our student ministry and God called him into ministry and 10 years later he invited me back where he was doing his own camp at Camp Lee to be the speaker and I brought Zach along with me uh, as one of our Bible study leaders as a college student and who knew Zach that it would all lead right back here. Uh, So you never know the stories that God's weaving and the way that God is at work. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Zach and Cody uh, have asked me to come and share today a little bit about what we call family equipping uh, ministry. Uh, And so the focus of my time today is going to be uh, to look at the life of Jesus and the home that he was raised in uh, and the community of faith that he was raised in. And then tonight uh, we're going to go a little deeper uh, with talking about how we equip the home and the church to work together. Uh, And we're going to be looking at giving you some practical handles for what you can do in your home And all of you have a home, even if you don't have young children or teenagers in your home, you have a home in which discipleship should be taking place in some way, shape, or form. And not only that, you have a community of faith that needs to wrap around every generation uh, and encourage them in the faith. So uh, I know a lot of times we begin to talk about things that have the word family in them. People think it's only for parents of young kids. It's not. It's a calling for all of us as a church, as we're going to see in a few moments today. But before we get into that, there's a couple of things I want to cover to kind of set the stage for where we're going to be going today. I want to tell you a story, and I want to give you a few statistics. So right about the time that I was called to serve this church in, in near Nashville, Tennessee, uh, as a student minister up there, a buddy of mine from just north of Birmingham called, and he and a group of area youth pastors from Birmingham got together every year in Gatlinburg, and they held a youth convention over uh, Christmas break. And so he asked me to come and be the guest speaker uh, for this youth conference. So I agreed, and we had one daughter at the time, and I I got on MapQuest, remember the days of MapQuest before smartphones, and plotted out how long it was going to take me to get from Spring Hill, Tennessee, to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Uh, What MapQuest didn't load in was the fact that it was Christmas break. And how many of you have been to Gatlinburg or Pigeon Forge? Anybody in this room? Okay. I had never been there, all right? I didn't know it was the Redneck Riviera. I didn't know that everybody from the Southeast United States descends upon Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge in the week between Christmas and New Year's. And so when we got just on the other side of Knoxville going east, all of a sudden it was gridlock and and I mean it was just a crawl of vehicles and I was getting more and more stressed. I had my old school cell phone with the big antenna, you know, I'm calling my buddy, man traffic is awful. He's like, well didn't you plan for that? I was like, no, where are all these people coming from? And so, super stressed out, we pull up to the doors of the convention center five minutes before I was supposed to be on the platform to speak. So I grab my Bible, I run in, I begin to give my first youth talk, and we got a couple hundred teenagers in this room, and all of a sudden I notice, about halfway into my message, that they're not paying any attention to me at all. Instead, they're doing this. And I'm like, what's going on? The convention center was attached to the aquarium, and they had left the big window open behind me. And so the kids were watching, the sharks and the stingrays, you know. And so at this point, I was like, Lord, this is not going well. We're just going to shut it down. We're going to pray. We're going to pray that God moves tomorrow. And we're just going to close this service down. And so I did that. I prayed. I sat down in the back just exhausted and just feeling like a miserable failure. My buddy gets up and is like, all right, we're going to have a great weekend together. And we've got a late night activity called Counselor Scavenger Hunt. And so he began to explain how this late night activity was going to work. What was going to take place was the counselors were going to all go scatter in downtown Gatlinburg. All of the students were going to get in their little small groups, and they were going to have their little brochure for the weekend, and they were going to have a pen in hand. And when they found that counselor, the counselor was going to sign their brochure, and that was going to be proof that they had found them, and they'd get their points. And the game they had an hour time limit, and it would be over. And then in a moment of spontaneity, my buddy looks at me, and he says, and J is going to be the bonus points. So if you find Jay, it's worth like 10,000 points. And I'm thinking to myself, dear Lord, that's the last thing I want right now is to run out in the cold in downtown Gatlinburg. You know, all I want to do is just chill and go go back and get checked in the hotel and get ready for tomorrow so uh, he said, on your market set, go. The counselors left, the kids left. I went back and I talked to my wife and our little infant daughter was with me at the time. And I said, you know, let's just lay low. I know these kids, they'll get distracted. The game will be boring to them. They, they'll never miss us. Well, after about 45 minutes, Tanya said, you know, that was a long, stressful ride. Why don't, why don't we just take Eliza for a little walk? Let's put her in the stroller, just get some fresh air and then we'll put her to bed and you know, we'll get off to a good start tomorrow. So I agreed. So unbeknownst to me, All of the kids in these groups had found every other counselor in downtown Gatlinburg. So these kids were on a mad hunt for me and my wife. And so if you've ever been there, you'll know that it all comes down to a point. Right in downtown Gatlinburg, there is a Y intersection. And so I get Eliza loaded up in the stroller. We get all bundled out. We walk out. We step across the street up onto that curb. And then we hear it. That otherworldly shriek that can only be made by a bunch of junior high girls. And so they scream. Ah! They run over to us. We found you. It's like, "Yeah, we're hiding right here on the sidewalk in the middle of everywhere. It's amazing. It was such a good cover." You know, and so we're laughing and we're signing their little booklets for them. And what always follows junior high girls? Junior high boys. Only it goes to the other end of the sonic spectrum, okay? Grunts, roo, 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 you know. And so Here they come, and we're laughing, and we're signing these little books. And all of a sudden, all of the groups headed back to the convention center. A couple of hundred kids are all crowded around us. They had all found us. We're laughing. We're signing things. And then something unusual began to happen. I wasn't signing programs anymore. I was signing receipts. I was signing people's baseball caps. I was signing the backs of people's shirts. And then it began to occur to me what had taken place. All of these people packed into downtown Gatlinburg had seen these hordes of screaming teenagers waving pens and papers in my face and we were signing autograph after autograph after autograph and the line was going on for days and people were stopping their cars in the middle of gatlinburg traffic and getting out to see who these famous people were it may have been the best 15 minutes of my life i mean it was remarkable and the best part was to watch people's face when you'd sign something and they'd look at it and they'd look at you and then they'd walk away like this, you know, totally humiliated because I was a nobody. So that little story, not only was it a lot of fun, but it became, it became a parable to me and our staff as we began to try to figure out what God was doing with this generation. You see, what had taken place was a, a coincidence a certain set of circumstances that, made the, that that created the illusion that I was somebody who I was not. That we were somebody famous. In the same way, if you look at what's been happening with the next generations in the church over the last 20 to 30 years, we've created quite the illusion because of our buildings and programs Because of the relatively high attendance of young people, children, students, youth at our concerts and our rallies and our events, we've created the impression that we have effectively made disciples of the next generation. But as I was a youth pastor growing up through the ranks in the church, as we were watching what took place when kids graduated high school and quit coming to church altogether. As we heard the stories of our young people who graduated from the youth program and then effectively graduated from their faith as they went off to college, we began to grow concerned. Research came out that began to verify our fears. George Barna in 2006 published a study that said, my generation, I'm now 39 years old, that we were the most churched generation in the history of the Protestant church. And now, 20 years later, we are the least. A researcher by the name of Christian Smith, published a book called Soul Searching. This is a major research project. He was at the University of North Carolina at the time. And in his study, the most comprehensive study ever done uh, on teenagers and spirituality in America, he said that our young people were emerging from all of our programs, all of our efforts, all of our vacation Bible schools and camps with a faith that he could not describe as Orthodox Christianity. Instead, he labeled them moral therapeutic deists. Moral, they think it's about right and wrong, about keeping God happy, about God up there with the divine scorecard. They knew nothing about grace, nothing about faith. Therapy in that it was individualized religious therapy for them. They went to church when they needed to feel good about themselves, when they needed to feel some kind of connection. But it had very little to do with discipleship. And deism, in the sense that most young people believe in this country that there is a God. But most of them believe that he is a distant creator. And matter of fact, he called it "God as Santa Claus." Some happy big guy up in the sky, and when I want something, I go ask him for it." So with all of that, we began to grow concerned, and research has continued to come out to verify some of our concerns. I want to put up some things on the board for you, on your screens for you this morning. Uh, last summer, Time magazine published an article on the millennials. This is the generation right now that is coming through our children and student ministries. And they labeled the the product of this research, the the, the title, the me, me, me generation. Let me give you a couple of statistics that came out in their research. Here's the first one. Three times. Any idea what that is? That's the number of our people that are being, young people, that are being diagnosed with what's called narcissistic personality disorder. Narcissism—it's all about me. Counselors are seeing this number skyrocket in the world that we live in today. Here's the nest statistic that I want to put up on the screen for you: forty percent. Any idea what that number represents? That's the number of our young people that believe they should be given a promotion and a raise within their first two years of employment, regardless of their performance. They want a raise. They want a bigger office, and they want more, regardless of how well they've performed on the job. Why? Because this is the generation that we've given participation trophies to. We've never wanted to do anything to damage their self-esteem. Instead, we have propped them up, and we have created a huge sense of entitlement in their lives. Here's the next stat. It's a number, 88. Any clue? This generation loves their phones, but they don't love talking on them. 88 is the average number of text messages that a millennial sends every single day. What does this mean for us? It means that they've learned to communicate only in very shallow, bite-sized bits of information, rarely going deep, rarely thinking or reading critically. And then here's the next one. It's an acronym, FOMO. Anybody knows what this one means? Fear of missing out. They are on social media all of the time. And by the way, this just isn't teenagers anymore. It's adults as well. But they are so afraid that they're going to miss out on something that's going on in the world, on Twitter or on Facebook and on social media that's what's what's happening. They're missing out on the life that's happening right in front of them in the here and in the now. It's not uncommon anymore to go to a restaurant and watch an entire family not speak to one another because they're all on their phone, engaged with their thumbs, but not with their heads and their hearts. And last but not least, this is the one that gives us pause in the church, one third. This is the number of our millennials that declare themselves religiously unaffiliated. The nuns. It is by far the highest percentage ever in American history of young people who would say, I don't know what I believe. I don't know if there is a God. That's what we're up against. That's what we're dealing with. And so for us as a church family being overwhelmed by this challenge, we decided that the best way forward was actually to go back, to look to the scriptures, to humbly come before the Lord and say, Lord, what have we missed along the way? And what is it that we need to recover from your word? And where is the very best place to look at the life of Jesus himself Lord, what were the influences that you allowed to shape your son other than these influences that we allow to shape the next generations in our community and in our homes? And we find the one story about the childhood of Jesus in Luke, the second chapter. So would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read this passage this morning? It's also printed in your bulletin I saw. Luke chapter 2 Verses 39 through 52 this morning. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy, being Jesus, grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Now every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. And after those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. And then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple complex, sitting among the teachers, listening to them. And asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. And then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with people. Pray with me this morning. Father, we confess that the answers don't come easy. That we live in times in which we are easily distracted and discouraged. Father, I pray today that we would find great strength in the simple plan that you laid before Mary and Joseph, that they were obedient to, that your son, their son, was to be raised in a home of faith, surrounded by a community of faith, so that he would understand the authority of his father. God, in the same way, may we put those building blocks into our homes and into our churches. So God, open our ears and our hearts and our lives to your word today, and it's in your son's name we pray these things, and all God's people said, amen. So you may be seated. So what's so curious for us, as we begin to think about the next generation, is the fact that there are so few stories about the childhood of Jesus. And then, of course, after this story, we have nothing from the time that Jesus was about 12 to the time that he was 30. Now we know the good Dr. Luke, who wrote both Luke and Acts, was a brilliant scholar. Not only was he a good physician, but he was a brilliant historian. And so many of us think, many scholars think that part of the reason that Luke avoided a lot of childhood stories about Jesus, and we believe that Luke got much of his gospel from Mary from his time spent there interviewing her and the other early followers of Jesus on one of his trips with Paul with Paul back to Jerusalem and to that area. One of the things that he wanted to avoid was this, these ridiculous stories of the Greek gods and goddesses and their acts of heroism as young children. So instead, Luke, like a laser, points us to one story about the childhood of Jesus that becomes a summary of everything that influenced Jesus. And so what were those distinctives of Jesus' earthly home? Well, first of all, this. He was raised in a home of sincere and profound faith. Look what it says in verse 39. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord. When they had been faithful to do everything that the Old Testament asked a parent to do, to honor a child's birth, to prepare that child for life, to follow and be obedient to the law, we don't have time to go back through it all today. But if you go back and you read the Old Testament and what it instructed people to do, you will see here Luke's testimony that Mary and Joseph were faithful to do everything that they were supposed to do. And I don't know about you, but that is a tremendous challenge as a parent of four myself. There are so many different pressures and and time management issues that tug at us as a family. To be sure that we're focusing on the right things, prioritizing the right things in our home is a tremendous challenge. And we see the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph in doing everything that the law asked them to do. It says every year, in verse 41, his parents traveled That word traveled in the original language means it was a repeated action. In other words, how did they prioritize their time and the resources of family? Joseph was a humble carpenter. Deuteronomy 16.16 told God's people that they should all return to Jerusalem every year for the Passover feast. So they didn't go to Disney World. They didn't go to the beach. Instead, they prioritized their time and resources to do what the Lord's word said was important what mattered. And that ordered Jesus's faith growing up as a young man. That was their big trip for the year to have the opportunity to go and to remember what God had done for God's people when that angel of death had passed over the firstborn children of Israel and they had lived. That was a rhythm. That was a pattern that was pounded into the developmental life of Jesus from a very young age. And here's one of the questions that you have to ask. The traditions that we establish as a family. The way we prioritize how we use our time and our treasures. And what are those things pointing to? And so as you begin to think about the opportunities that you have as a parent, as a grandparent, as an aunt, and uncle. To shape the life of your family. To be intentional with those opportunities is an example that we see modeled here in the home of Mary and Joseph. We know that Scripture was a key part of Jesus' home. Why? Because as we'll see in this passage, he was well versed in it to the point that he could sit down with the scribes of his day and hold his own. You know, it's very interesting. Flip over with me to Mark chapter 8, verses 28 through 31. It's the famous story of one of the scribes trying to put Jesus on the spot. It says, one of the scribes approached him and when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked of him, so which command is the most important of all? A bit of a trap question, 613 commands that the Jews had. Verse 29, this is the most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God the one the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, even when I was a teenager, when I was reading that passage. You know, Jesus gets put on the spot. What's the most important command of all? What is the answer? And I thought to myself, well, Jesus was God. So he just pulls out the God card, right? And he gives the best answer ever. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Awesome. Bam. Take that, scribes. It wasn't until later in life that I realized what Jesus was doing. What was Jesus quoting? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. It's a passage that. Orthodox Jews recite to this day several times daily. Why? Because it orders their faith. In a world of competing gods, there is one God. You have no other gods before him. And what does Deuteronomy 6, 4 say? This truth is to be upon your heart. Impress it upon your children. That word impress means to chisel to hammer it out, just like a sculptor As he's working on a piece of stone, you've got to repeat the same truths, the same lessons over and over again in a way that's developmentally appropriate. But we've got to keep bringing our children into that knowledge that all of life is discipleship. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, you talk about these things as you walk along the road and when you lie down, first thing in the morning and last thing at night, Moses was instructing God's people that all of life, not just when we sit at church it was about learning to honor God and to love him with everything that we are and this was a truth that was impressed upon Jesus from an early age Jesus after his baptism goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan what does Jesus respond with scripture in particular the book of Deuteronomy what if today your spiritual success was dependent upon your grasp and your knowledge and your ability in the moment to quote Scripture from the book of Deuteronomy. What's more convicting for us? How much time are we spending teaching the next generation these same truths so that when they are tempted, when they are tried, they're able to respond not out of the flesh, but with the timeless truth of the word of God. These were the things that Jesus learned in his home of faith. We know lots more. If you infer through all throughout the Gospels, you can see that Jesus did things like he wore the tassels on the sides of his clothes. Because it talks about how the women reached out for those and they were healed. And that was a sign that Jesus dressed like his people. Jesus spoke like his people. He walked with his people. He took on the humble vocation of his father, a carpenter, so he could learn about the dignity of work. And in all of these things, God was shaping him and teaching him in the home. But it was not just the home that had an influence on him. It was also his community of faith. And that's the second distinctive that marked Jesus' life, that he was raised in a community of faith. We know that Joseph, a humble carpenter, sent him to the synagogue so that he would be able to learn the nuances of the law, so that he'd have a deep understanding of these things, so he would be able to stand toe-to-toe with these scribes. And not only that, look at the text with me in verse 43. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. He's 12 years old. For most of us, that just kind of means, ah, he's a preteen. For the Jews, that was a critical year. You were known as the son of the law if you were 12 years old, because at 13, you became a man in Jewish society. And so this was a critical year. In other words, this was a turning point in the life of Jesus and his spiritual development. In verse 44, assuming he was in the traveling party, they went on a day's journey. In other words, they trusted that he was with their community of faith that had traveled up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with them. Just like our young people go to spend the night at somebody's house that we know and that we trust, Mary and Joseph had seen Jesus with some of their friends, trusted that he was with them, and off they went. And what happens, verse 45, when they did not find him they returned to Jerusalem to search for him now I'm sorry but as a parent I have to stop and there's a little bit of humor in this to me just play this out with me for a moment because I know what this would look like if it was me and Tanya okay all right where's Jesus I don't know is he not over there nope he's not there no he's not there either all of a sudden they realize Jesus isn't here you know what happens when you even like lose your phone you know that feeling that anxiety you get Now, can you imagine losing a child? And now, can you imagine what happened to Mary and Joseph as they're hiking back up to Jerusalem? Mary, Joseph, do you realize what we've done? Joseph, yes, we've lost our son. Mary, do you remember who he is? Joseph, yes, quit stressing me out. Mary, of all things, Joseph, we've lost God's son. The pressure had to be enormous. And so they find him there in the temple complex, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. That literally means struck out of their senses. Let me translate that into southern speak for us. Mary was crazy mad out of her mind, okay? As the old saying goes, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And Mary was not a happy camper at this point. But there is this tremendous moment for her that happens where Jesus says, why were you searching for me? Now Jesus never sinned. he's not talking back. He's not trying to be a smart aleck in this moment. But he says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And this is that moment where Mary is reminded, oh yeah, oh yeah, this kid has been given to me to raise and to train, but this kid doesn't belong to me. And there is that moment for you and I as parents, as children's ministry leaders, as youth group leaders, where we remember that God has given us our children and our students, By his grace, to mold and shape for his eternal plans and purposes. But they are not ours. They belong to him. And so we have a responsibility, a calling to serve them in a way by which they will come to understand who they are in God, in Christ They will come to understand the destiny, the plan that God has for them. We talk often in our church about I and D, identity and destiny, and how young people today need that so desperately. That the best thing that they can have emerging from our homes, emerging from our churches is a deep and abiding understanding of who they are in Jesus Christ and a clear sense of direction and calling in whatever venue of life God pursues them and pushes them towards, that they understand that they are God's agent of grace and redemption in that part of the world into which he has led them. That is what prevents young people from floating away as nuns from our churches and from our homes. And Jesus understood that, and this is that moment where Mary understands it. And all of you parents with teenagers, highlight verse 50. But they did not understand what he said to them, because that's the way you feel when you're the parent of a preteen or a teenager. But look what Jesus did, and this is the third thing that marked him that Jesus grew up under the authority of his father. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. What does the law say, young people? Honor your father and your mother. There's no getting around it. Understanding that you are the most free when you are under ultimate authority is one of the greatest lessons that you will ever learn. And Jesus knew that he had to model that, and so he went back to Nazareth with them. And of course, Mary kept all of these things in her heart, and Jesus increased. That word means cut his way forward through a broken and a falling, fallen world. Why? Because he knew who he was, and he knew where he was going. And so for you and I, how do we respond to this today? What are we called to do? Well, first of all, remember that you cannot lead the next generation where you have not gone yourself. So your first and most important task is Deuteronomy, that Jesus quoted, says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. This truth must be upon your heart. So if you want to make a difference in the next generation, the first task for you is to surrender your life to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to confess that you cannot overcome what you're called to do, the struggles of this world, the opportunities that God has placed in front of it. You can't do any of it apart from him. And so today you need him. Maybe you're here today and you realize that somewhere along the way you abdicated your role as a spiritual influencer in your home or in your church. And today you need to take up that mantle and that calling to be that spiritual leader in the place that God has placed you. Or today maybe you're a a family, you're a parent, you're a grandparent and in your home you've been striving to do these things. Well here from the text we can learn the power of knowing God's word of scripture memorization. Of shared experiences, just like Mary and Joseph prioritized the Passover feast for them and their family. And a shared mission, like Joseph, who had to choose to be the earthly adoptive father of Jesus. A calling that he had to take seriously. And after this story, he disappears from the pages of scripture. His legacy is what? His son. And for many of us, the most important legacy that we will leave will be through our children and our grandchildren. One little final story as we close. Just another uh, story that's become a bit of a parable for me to try to help you understand the power of this calling and opportunity and what it means. So each and every year, there is a Christmas parade in a little town called Franklin, Tennessee, just up the road from us. And in this little community, uh, there's lots of people who gather. It's a picturesque little old downtown. There's a lot of Civil War history there, but thousands and thousands of people come to this parade. And so when our three daughters were little, my good friend John Cook, who's just kind of one of these wild and crazy guys, he's just a fun guy to live life with. Zach knows him well, and Zach's already smiling because he knows the story. So John calls me. Our girls are almost identical in age. And so we agreed that we were going to go to the Franklin Christmas Parade together. And so the reason why this story is on my mind because he just emailed me the other day, hey, are we doing it again this year? And so that first year, John got on the website to see what time it started, what time we should meet, kind of where the parade route was going to be. And clicking around, he discovered the page that said floats. He discovered that there was no price to enter a float in the Franklin Christmas Parade. And so John calls me up and he says, Jay, I got a plan. I was like, okay, John. He goes, I got a flatbed trailer and some hay. He goes, instead of going to the parade, why don't we throw our kids onto a float and why don't we be in the parade this year? And I'm like, John, this is the Franklin Christmas Parade. This thing is like full of these expensive floats that are handmade and you got all kinds of celebrities, you know, on them. And you got marching bands. I was like, we're not any of that. He goes, I know, but I just think it'd be fun. He goes, so I'll get some hay. I'll throw it on our hay, you know, the back of the trailer. And, and I was like, John, you know, have you thought about stuff like everybody throws out candy? He was like, oh, yeah, you're right. You got leftover Halloween candy at your house? I was like, yeah, some of it we need to get rid of. He was like, "We'll bring it, you know. And so I want to put up a picture on the screen. So here's what we did at the Franklin Christmas Parade, right? Us and our girls, we all loaded up onto John's little trailer, pulled onto the back of his SUV. I mean, the thing's rusted out. <laughs> There's hay bales on it. We strung up some Christmas lights that only like half worked. And we got into line in, uh, right behind a bunch of flo- floats featuring the Tennessee Titans, right in front of the Nashville Predators, who were right in front of some country music stars, who were right in front of Santa Claus. Why they put us there in the parade, I don't know. But here we go down the streets of Franklin, Tennessee. And man, people are waving and they're clapping. And our kids are throwing out candy, you know. And they're having the time of their lives. And I even have on our video camera, we're we're coming around downtown and the people are stacked 20 deep. And people are like, hello, Tennessee Titans. Hello, Leanne Rhimes! Hello, random people on a float. Moral of the story, what's more fun than going to a parade? Being in a parade. You guys, God is up to something powerful with this generation. We don't want to sit on the sidelines. We want to be a part of it. And God has called us, every single one of us, to forge homes of faith surrounded by a community of faith so that we can follow Jesus. And loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And taking that message that we sang about earlier today to the ends of the earth. Would you bow your heads with me this morning as we come to this time of invitation and commitment. And I know today I've thrown a lot at you. So we're going to talk in depth more about what this looks like this evening. But it begins with loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So today, if Jesus is not the center of your life, if Jesus is not at the throne, if Jesus is not the one that you love more than anything else, then today is the day of salvation. And Cody's going to be down here and some of your staff is going to be down here in just a moment. And we invite you to respond. Or today, maybe it's a matter of conviction for you. Maybe you know Christ, but you realize that in your own home, you have not been faithful to make it a place of spiritual instruction and discipleship. And so today, maybe you need to come, confess, pray, ask God to show you, and to not overlook the simple truth. Jesus was raised in a home of faith, surrounded by a community of faith. However you need to respond, this is that moment. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us so much. And Father, I thank you for the example set for us by Mary and Joseph and by their community of faith, God, that we would be found as faithful as them and teaching the next generation to love you with everything that they are. Now, Father, help us to not leave this place till we've responded to you. We love you, Lord, and it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.
1: Amen. So- You see your soul